Welcome to Thinking Outside the Box with Gavin Rubinstein. Conversations between Gavin and the people he believes have trailblazed by thinking outside the box in their field, industry, or even just in his office. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Chantel Thornton. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Gavin. This is a bit of a different kind of episode today. We're digressing from selling real estate and we're delving into a whole different industry with someone who I believe is absolutely great at what they do. I mean, the point of this podcast is to delve into the mindsets of people who have achieved amazing things in their space. And you are a prime example of that. Tell us a bit about what you do. Thanks for having me, Gavin. I'm a specialist breast cancer surgeon. So basically that means I diagnose and treat breast cancer and lead the multidisciplinary team of people that are involved in the breast cancer management. More on the surgical side, I basically operate on ladies that have breast cancer. I've had a look at your career. It's, it's, uh, you are definitely the most qualified and impressive person we've had on the podcast to date. So, <laughs> Thank you. you know, thank, thanks a lot for coming. Appreciate you making some time for that. Tell us a bit about kind of how you started. I understand you grew up in Tasmania and then you're now living in Melbourne, but you reside here too, kind of. So give me a bit of a rundown. I'm a country girl, as I said to you, Gavin. I was born in Devonport, Tasmania, and I decided from a very young age that I wanted to be a doctor. My grandfather gave me a doctor's kit at age six, and I thought I really want to do medicine. And so from that time on, I was very sort of one-sighted, you know, eye on the ball. I did play basketball too, Gavin. I like your basketball there. Um, <laughs> That's LeBron. But, yeah, but I played for Tasmania. Anyway, so I decided I'm going to do medicine and then I qualified as a doctor and then I thought, you know, I'd love to do pediatrics. So I tried a year of pediatrics and during that time I – I'd bought a small property in Melbourne and needed new floorboards, so I needed some money. So I thought I'll just go on my annual leave and I'll do some locuming work in Tasmania. So I went back to the hospital in La Trobe, a hospital that my grandfather's construction company had actually built and actually the hospital where he died. And I worked there and during that time, an elderly gentleman came in who was in obstructed urinary retention. He had a very large prostate and his bladder was very full, had litres of um, urine in it and he was in incredible pain. And I called the family and said, you know, you need to take him, you know, to another hospital 200 plus k's away. And uh, they said, you know, too much alcohol Saturday night, we can't drive him. Sorry about that, love, calls back. Then I called the air ambulance there. The weather had come in, they couldn't get out. There was no ambulances available. And I thought, well, I've got to actually put this super pubic catheter in myself. I'd never seen one, didn't know how to do it. And so I sort of said to the nurse, go down the back and dust off the super pubic catheter kit. And so they came back with this old kit and I had the old fashioned book in those days. There wasn't really great internet service there. And I sort of Googled how to, you know, in the book, how to, um, you know, make, make the incision for the super pubic catheter. And the poor little man, he was screaming in pain. And because, you know, morphine doesn't help or anything doesn't help in those circumstances. And when they say, you know, the first cut is the deepest, it definitely was. I made that cut. I put that catheter in and the relief on the man's face, he jumped out of the bed. He said, love, I love I love you. I love you. And he went to grab me and, you know, cuddle me. And I just thought, this is amazing. Like I've done something so small and I've made such an incredible difference to this man's life. I really want to do surgery. And so I came back from that episode and I said to the pediatricians at the Royal Children's Hospital, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to knock on the College of Surgeons doors. I want to do, you know, I really want to do surgery. And they said, look, you need to understand this is a very prestigious job that you've got. You know, there's only 20 jobs at this that you've got in Australia. In yeah. Right. And there's only 20 positions in Australia. You've got one. If you you make the wrong decision, I will go out of my way to make sure you never get a job in paediatrics anywhere in Australia or the world. So make your decision clearly today. And I said, 
you've said that to me. I've made my decision. I'm leaving. I'm going to do surgery. How old were you at this time? 22 or 23, yeah. Because I read you decide you want to be a doctor at nine. Yes. And then I read you studied for 16 years. Mm, six years to do medicine. Right. 10 years to do surgery and an extra year for a fellowship. So what's that? That's 11 plus six, 17, yeah, 17 years. It's a long time. But you're working during that time. Right. So the first six years you're not working and then 10, 10 years, obviously, you're working you know, as a doctor during the day in the hospitals, in the evenings, just studying. Right. So, um, so early days, you know, you wanted to be a doctor, but as kind of everything started to evolve in this circumstance right here, you decided, hey, I want to get into surgery. Yeah. And then I sort of knocked on the College of Surgeons door and they said, okay, you can apply. And I applied. And then I started the surgical training program and I realized then, you know, 8% of surgeons at that stage are women. And then I just thought, well, what am I going to do to maximize my gender? What can I do? And I had a very strong family history of breast cancer. So um, three Yeah, th aunts. three aunts, yeah. Uh, a cousin, a grandmother. And I just thought, you know what, I can make a difference to the lives of women. I can use my gender to help me in the surgical profession because most women want to be seen by, not everyone, but most females who've got breast cancer would like to be treated by a female surgeon. So I thought, you know, I'm going to make a difference to the lives of women with breast cancer. I'm going to hopefully be able to help particularly rural women with breast cancer. My aunt was in a small country town. She got told that her upper limb pain was from working on a computer in the bank where she worked. And that's why she had pain in the arm when in actual fact she had breast cancer, very nasty late stage breast cancer. And she died a hideous death. And I just thought, I can't see other women go through that. I want to change that. So I chose breast cancer surgery. And I did a general surgical fellowship at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, which was a mainly trauma hospital. So that was very exciting. And then I did a subspecialization in breast cancer melanoma at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center. And now I just solely do breast cancer surgery. What a journey. So how long have you been doing it for? So I've been a surgeon uh, for 12 years. Yeah. I mean, during my undergraduate course, I did do quite a lot of other things. Like I went to University of Hong Kong, I got a scholarship to go there and I did some basic science work in a laboratory, which was wonderful. And I think from that, I learned that research is really important, but my brain's more aimed at, you know, being one-on-one -on -one with people. Right. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And when yeah. you started, did you kind of have this ambition of being the leader in your field or did that just evolve because you were fantastic at what you did? How did that transpire? I love learning about the body and I, I love, I've got a thirst for knowledge and, you know, I was ducked to my medical school. I won eight university prizes because I'm a real nerd. I was an absolute <laughs> nerd at university. I mean, you know, I studied so hard. I loved school, it. I was how were you at school? Same, same. I just studied. I mean, I was an all-rounder. I did sport and, you know, I was – but I was, like, not the person that was there on a Friday night going out, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, partying. You wanted to work, play basketball. You doing the – Yeah, I just yeah, studied right. hard. You know, I, I had a little window and I was boarding then and I had a little window that looked at the Launceston General Hospital and my desk was in front of that window and I basically just sat there 10, 11, 12, midnight, then 6 o'clock in the morning and, you know, I did what I needed to do to get into medicine. So you just knew this was written in the stars for you. Yeah, I was going to be a doctor. That was it. Age six, I was going to be a doctor and there was just nothing else. I mean, I don't think that that is necessarily great for young people today. Yeah. And I wouldn't say maybe don't do that. Keep your options open. But my personality is very all or nothing, Gavin. Yeah, I was so. like, that's what it's going to do. That's me and that's what I'm going to be. 
I just plan to give the patients the very best care, Gavin. Yeah, key. The very best care. The result. I, yeah. Be the best at what you do. Yeah. And everything give them else the take. best care. Yeah. So if you give your patient the best care all the time, and if you can say, I've done that, you've done a great thing. And so that's all I ever wanted to do. Because I thought no matter what I do, every day you get up, you're making a difference to someone's life. But also I just thought to myself, no one can ever criticize you if you're doing the best care for the patient every time. I mean, not that I would ever, you know, compare what we do to what you do. But there are a lot of similarities here. I mean, I always say to people, if you want to be great at what you do, focus on getting the client the best result and focus on the client. And so long as you keep the main thing, the main thing, everything else will kind of unfold from there. So just kind of winding back, what was your upbringing like with your your family, your mom and your dad and and kind of what did, what did that look like? Were they kind of influencing you to be a doctor? No, I mean, my parents are very supportive of education. Right. You know, standard sort of, I guess, Anglo-Saxon family. My dad was a banker. My mother stayed at home and looked after my sister and I. My sister's a solicitor. I mean, it was very supported. And I guess, look, let's face it, Gavin, I'm not great at domestic chores. I don't know how I'm, to cook. I'm the worst. I'm I can't the worst know how to cook. <laughs> I don't know how to do the laundry. All I know is how to work and study and do my job. And I think that was because my mum was very supportive. She was like, listen, you study. Was your mum domestic? Yeah, my mum's right. very domestic. She's right. a beautiful cook. She can run the right. house. She's amazing. My dad was very hardworking, never had a day off, ever. They said no such word as can't in this family. You can do anything you want to do. And so that was really where it came from, basically. If you want to do that, have a go, try it. You will be great at it. And if it's worth doing, do it well. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so you you, you say you're not great at domestic chores, but you've got two children. Yes. So, <laughs> so you you know, not that I'm putting you in a stereotypical box or anything no. like that, but you've hit all these incredible milestones. 12 years in seems to me like you're just getting started, right? So there's yeah. such a long path ahead. Yeah. How have you juggled? Because I'm, I'm like you, I'm all or nothing, right? So- yeah. And I'm, I'm 34 turning 35 and people, yeah. particularly close friends or even people in the community always press me, when are you having kids? When are you getting married? And you know, my response is I'm all or nothing. I'm tunnel vision. If I distract my energy, yeah. I won't be as effective in that particular lane I'm, I'm driving in, which of course is TRG. And so my question to you is how have you maintained being mm. great at everything and shifting your energy? Because from my understanding, you're accessible to your clients always. You're on call 24 hours a day. Your your big thing is I want to be responsive and available to my clients. One thing I'd say, Gavin, you're very lucky. You're born as a male (laughs) and you you have a fertility that will probably last until you're 85 or 90. So you've got time and you're very fit and healthy. So you you can have a child at 60. Great. Unfortunately, it's not the same for females. And I'd have to say I'm lucky. I mean, I'm much older than you. I'm 45, Gavin, and I am blessed and I'm very lucky. I have a two-year-old, two-year and three-month, and I have an eight-month-old. Did I ever think that was going to happen? No, Gavin. I had my first baby at 44 years of age, naturally. I have um, two friends at IVF Physicians. They both said, you know, you're probably infertile. You know, you may not have children. You're very old. You've left it too late. Your eggs are old after 36, gynecological old age. So one day to wake up at 44 and be pregnant, thought I thought I had cancer. I mean, you know, why am I so unwell? Why am I so tired? I mean, I have been blessed. It's a miracle, really. I mean, I mean there's no other explanation. I'm so lucky because wow. that was probably never going to happen because like you, Gavin, I'm very focused. 
yeah. right? I've got to do the one job. Yeah. And I was pushing so hard in, in my business and looking after my patients and, you know, 14, 15 hour days. And, you know, one thing just rolls into the next. It's not like you've got time to think no. about that. You're sort of on this treadmill of life and you're going, going, going. And then one day you wake up and you're 40 years of age and you've got, you don't have any children. You're not married at that stage. And I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. So I've been very lucky. But so you got married after 40? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you met your husband where? Cosy Bar and Restaurant, cool. Cool. <laughs> which is a little Italian um, restaurant in Turek Road in South Era. Right. But I met him a long time ago. I mean, we'd been together for a long time. Right. Yeah. So, and he sort of just knew that that's, I'm a career person. That's her focus. She loves it. That's her job. My patients really were my life, you know. Yeah, I can relate. And that now obviously having the kids, I mean, any sort of tips, I guess, in relation to outside of if you're not a male, if you're, you're a female and you love your job, or your role like you did, yeah. right? How do you juggle it? Yeah, I think, you know, the guilt that mothers feel is real and the juggle is real. I think t- you've got to have a team. Your team, what does the, the business team look like? Let's go business and then personal because I'm very interested in both. I feel like they're connected, right? You know, you do your best work. I think when you're happy, not that you should ever chase happiness, but so long as things are in order in your personal life, I think they're connected and they flow. So how many employees do you have and what does the operation kind of look like? 10 to 15, um, but some most of those are contractors. Okay. So we have um, another surgeon, a breast and reconstructive surgeon that actually trained in Sydney and Queensland, Dr. Nanyu Chakrabarty. She she works with me and we have a breast physician, a survivorship doctor, and that's also my assistant surgeon. So she meets the patients in the operating theatre and then down the track, she looks after their sort of holistic health care. And then we have a couple of administration managers and we have three or four reception secretarial type people. And then we have some students, medical students coming in that do research for us. Mm-hmm. And then we have two nurses and then we have a CFO that my husband and I share. And then we have multiple sort of people that back us up. So we have a maintenance man, we right. have um, a housekeeper, male housekeeper that's been with us for 20 years. Right. So we have all of these. Is that them back- in the personal life? That they, the they also the, the housekeeper also does um, looks after the whole clinic for me Same as well. Same with me, I do business personally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Same, right. yeah. And then our nanny, she unfortunately recently um, left us, and you know I cried because I loved her. She was amazing, but she also used to do some administration work as well upstairs because I've got a bedroom suite upstairs for the children. Right. And so when the children slept, she you know did scanning of letters and faxing and all the urgent things because you know it's around the clock business, and I want the GPs to know what's happening to their patient real time. I have a cloud-based system so I can access patient data anywhere in the world 24 hours a day. So it's just rolling all the time. The results are going in and out. You built up a suite in the clinic for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great. And when before I had children, I used to sleep there so that I'd be opposite the hospital if there was any issues bleeding or I was operating very late in the evening was much easier for me to come home and just be across the road and could sleep there in the morning, get up early, you know, can do the ward round early before you start operating in or start consulting. So that was all sort of tailor-made. And you also have a property that's near the clinic in Melbourne that you created, which you provide to patients to make them feel like they're more at home. Yeah, so that's that is my vision. So at the moment, just because of COVID, there was no sort of it was very difficult to do a renovation. So at the moment, I've got some psychologists in those rooms, and that's also um, a Victorian house right opposite the emergency department of Epworth Hospital. And so eventually, that will become a home away for home for the you know the rural, the interstate, and the international patients. 
so they can bring their family and they can stay in a more homely environment, but they're still sort of connected to the hospital and very close to our consulting rooms. So you'd obviously need very good people to help you implement these ideas, right? Because you've got to stay focused on what you do, which is looking after the patient as a priority, but then you've got all of these other ideas to make the experience a lot more evolved, but you need good people to be able to do that. Mm. I feel like a useless individual right now. I thought I was pretty productive with what I do. Your husband is a luxury car specialist, right? That's correct. We should have got him in here too. I know. I, I well, like- he did want to come in and I said, oh, I like, you know, he, he dropped me off at the front. He said, oh, I'd like to come in and meet Gavin. I said, darling, it's kind of like your father dropping you off. I don't think <laughs> you need to come in. I think it'll be okay. Because I love my luxury yeah, cars. Yeah, I know. He said, oh, well, I can see there's a nice Lamborghini out there. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you get to enjoy some of those? I mean, I'm I sure. Do. Yeah. What, what's your favorite car? Look, I think the Goldwing Mercedes. Love that. That's gone up in value a lot. Yeah. Those are like a million bucks now. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think that's a beautiful car. Look, I did have a gorgeous Aston Martin, which he bought for me, the Vantage. Oh, um, but uh, the children were born and so that sort of went out the window and uh, I heard him one day saying, oh, it's a beautiful car. It's driven by my wife and she loves it. I bought it for my wife. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> it's usually my car. And he's like, you don't need it anymore. You don't need it. We've got, um, got kids now. <laughs> so I drive the G. G-Wagon now. Oh, beautiful car. It's a bit of a truck, you know, and I do have a gorgeous little Fiat Bambino. I've got the Maserati version. So it's maroon and it's got my, you know, my my pink C with the nipple on it for branding. And I screwed around Melbourne in my little um, Fiat Bambino as well, which I love. How important is branding in your business? And that's that's a perfect segue. Like, you're top of your field, master of your craft, very well known in the industry. Yeah. I know we talk about, you know, being the best at what you do and looking after the patient is, is key one, but I guess that has to be supplemented with logos, yes. with, you know, that, that branding element. Has that come into play in, and how important of a role does that play in your business? Yeah, I think it's sort of, it's an osmotic thing really. And I mean, I didn't sort of set out to do that, but I think, Eventually, you know, every business has to do that. And it's hard in medicine. And I I think in Sydney, I think they're better at it, I've got to say. I mean, I think that they have got more experience in branding and the like. I mean, traditionally, surgeons are, I guess, very conservative people usually. It's a very conservative industry. So while you see me in bright pink now, my consulting rooms are a white house with a bright pink front door. There's nothing about cancer. They're very beautiful rooms. Probably that would not be what people would expect a surgeon's rooms to be. So I definitely, you know, was not like that when I was training. You know, it was more about the College of Surgeons, the old school, um, that very sort of established background that exists. And then after that, I just thought, you know, it actually doesn't have to be like that. I can wear bright pink. I can wear stilettos. Yeah. 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 And, you know, so I've kind of changed things up a bit and the brand has just come. Evolved naturally. I love that. Yeah. Do you think it it kind of based on you doing things a little bit differently, do you think that puts anybody off? Like, you know, the people who are kind of stuck to the norm or so the old school way. And do you think that potentially you've lost business by doing that? Probably. I mean, I think probably people self-select to come to me and there is a certain demographic that I do attract. You know, there are also people that probably go and need the old male surgeon wearing the navy suit with the dark tie and they need that person to tell them they've got cancer and they need that person to direct their treatment. They're not the women that come to see me. Yeah. So you appeal to a specific market, I guess. Yeah. 
Why do you think it's so male-dominated? I mean, it, real estate also, I always try and understand because me personally, whenever I go and not that I'm saying you're in a sales yeah, role, but me, whenever I go to buy something, yeah. I would much rather deal with a female who knows her stuff, you know? So I think there's huge opportunity, particularly in Sydney, when you look at real estate for a sec, if you compare the female presence in the real estate industry here compared to like New York, London, Europe, it's really, really small. Like there's mm. just not a lot. You don't see a lot of these females kind of who know what they're doing at six years old, who go into dominate, who sacrifice their personal life to be the best at what they do. Why? Uh, I think it is a fertility issue um, and the aging, uh, you know, the, the rate at which we age, our eggs age. But, You're you saying because men have longer, right? Yeah, because, and right. at the end of the day, I mean, you can't be a part-time real estate agent. No. I'm sure no. you can, but you can't, actually. No. And you no. can't be a part-time surgeon. Yeah. So something's got to give. And I think that women find that harder because traditionally in a relationship, you know, it's still the female's job. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, does my husband ever worry about the childcare? No, no, he doesn't. But why doesn't he? He should. Yeah. Why am I the one waking up thinking, oh, I don't have a nanny today or who's going to be on the roster to look after the children? Or He never does that. Yeah. He's just up making 25 sales calls before 7 a.m. Yeah. And I'm the one thinking this, this, this and this. And so I think at the end of the day, uh, uh, women still carry that role. It's responsibility, right? Yeah. And I think that's why. And I, and I think that people probably – can't do both because to be a surgeon and to do the training to be surgery, I mean, sure, women do it, but it's it's very hard, Gavin. Seventeen years, I, yeah, and also too, you can't. You're on call in the middle of the night. You might get called out to operate. You know, someone's bleeding. You've got to go. I mean, if you don't have someone there that's going to be looking after the children, what do you do? You can't go. And your duty of care is first and foremost always to your patient. So. I think that's the real issue. It's the balancing act. Yeah. You're on and you're on all the time. You're on for your clients. People have your mobile phone number, Gavin. Yeah, They've got mine as well. They'll ring it if there's a problem and 100%. I need to go. And it doesn't matter what's happening externally in your life, you've got to go. You've got a duty of care. You try to inspire more females to come into the industry, yeah. right? You've taken a couple of measures to do that. What sort yeah. of things have you done? Well, I mentor quite a lot of female students and we, we have a sort of open house policy at the rooms with people that are accredited to come through. So Melbourne University, Monash University, Bond University wow. students come. We take international students as well. We just open up the rooms. I give them part-time jobs so that they can come in on the weekends or after hours and they can do letters for a scanning just for them to start to see what it's like and how dynamic it is and that it's not nine to five. And, you know, when they say, you know, some of the medical students say, oh, you know, Dr. Chantel, it's five o'clock now. Like I, my my time's up. Well, we still have four more patients in the waiting room. I've still got a ward round to do and I've got another case to do tonight in the theatre. <laughs> well, would you like to come? Oh, no, no, my time's up. Well, how are those people going to be doctors, Gavin? Honestly. Yeah, look, I deal with the exact same thing, if not worse in my industry. The difference, um, there's a lot of differences, but we've got such a low barrier for entry. So you can imagine if you deal with that, <laughs> what the hell I deal with on a day to day. But people need to actually study in your in your space. I mean, mine's just a, a freaking nightmare. <laughs> they want to wake up. Everyone oh wants to wake God. up as Gavin. Jeez, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I listen to you speak and I hear all of these great things and you've, you've got a high level of energy. You seem like a very positive person. Yeah energy management, right? You deal in a space that is obviously positive to you because you're helping so many people, but to yeah. a lot of other individuals like myself, the C word operating, you know, I, I personally have a huge fear in that area. So that's a very negative topic for me. Mm. How do you stay positive with everything you're doing and dealing with on a daily basis? What's your, what are your methods? 
I mean, I think first and foremost, I mean, cancer is a hard word. And I mean, you said the C word. I think we've got to, we've got to say it, Gavin, because people are not going to die of cancer. Most people in Australia with breast cancer are not going to die. They're going to live a long, fruitful life. And we need as a society to change the way we perceive it. Mm. Right. It's an issue because it shouldn't necessarily be a negative connotation. I mean, sure, it's going to be bloody hard, particularly the first 12 months. But after that, those women are usually going to go on to live long lives. And it's how you address them during that, that first diagnostic period, how you deal with their immune system that's really going to help them fight the disease. And so that's why my practice, it's positive, it's happy, it's energetic. People come there, they laugh. They're like, this is ridiculous, Chantel. I can't believe, oh, in a consulting session like this, you've told me I've got cancer, but you know, we're laughing about things because they're not going to die. The reality is they're not. And so don't treat the patient in a negative approach because you know, my job is the most rewarding job in the world, Gavin. You know, it's the worst day of the woman's life, let's face it, and also of their partner's life that I've told them they've got cancer. But at the end of the day, we're going to be able to make a difference to their life and they're going to live a long time and sometimes they're going to change things about their life that they didn't like. And so it may end up being a more positive experience for them. And how do you stay happy? Like how do you yeah. how do you stay in this positive place? Look, it's hard, Gavin. I won't say it's not hard at the end of the day seeing 30 patients and then having to tell, you know, 35-year-old lady with two children she's got nasty cancer. It's really hard. I've got, you know, as I said, I've got a great team. I've got wonderful nurses that help and they come to all the consults with me when I tell patients. Right. I've got amazing family and friends. I've got great positive friends. I spend my time only with people that feel my jug, that make me feel great. I love to go to the gym. I love to go for a run. I love to go for a walk about in the botanic gardens. You train every day? Yeah, if I can. 20 yeah. minutes, that's all I yeah. have because yeah. now obviously it's harder with the children. But yeah, just 20 minutes, even if that's 20 minutes on the treadmill, just some time for my brain and for me to get that endorphins. I think I've got a fairly addictive personality, so I love that. But, you know, I think it's important to try and simplify your life as much as possible. If there's negativity in your life, remove it and try to stay happy because we also know that our immune system is very intimately related to our ability to fight cancer. And if you're happy, then your immune system is going to be better and you're going to fight all sorts of cancers. Yeah. I mean, stress is related to it as well, Mm. right? And if you're not in a good place, that has an effect. Yeah. I heard this guy once say, which I loved, he doesn't chase happiness. He feels that happiness is more of a, a fleeting feeling, like it's not real. And and when he used to chase happiness, he used to find there would be just, you know, intense peaks and troughs. And so now he just kind of focuses on being level and trying to learn from experiences. Do you believe in happiness? Do you think, you know, you should chase happiness or would you agree with him? I think it's subjective. I think what makes one person happy or one person's level of emotion is very different to another. What makes me happy is having some time off with my family and friends, but also it makes me happy Work. seeing my patients. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I mean, it's nothing greater. It's like you when you, when you see the deal, you've got happy customers, love. you've got a great vendor. It's the adrenaline that you get 100%. from that. It's like kind of the old phrase, making passion your paycheck. Yeah. Right. The top earners, I guess, in the country are surgeons. There's a direct correlation with surgeons being the hardest workers. I've always, because I've got a lot of clients who are surgeons and a lot of people I represent. And and, I mean, I see some of these guys who are top in their field and the way these guys work, I just, 
It's, it's just, on a different level, definitely. It's, it's just yeah. admirable. So it's not for anything short of you guys deserve everything and more, but it just so happens that your passion lines up with that. What do they say? If you do a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. 100%. And, and it kind of is like that. I mean, you've got great energy. You're, I, I bet when you're the busiest and you do, your biggest I'm month is when you're the happiest. Yeah, 100%. Like me, yeah. when I'm, you know, got five operating lists on, I've got, you know, lots of patients I'm presenting at the multi-smith team meeting, when I'm going to speak here, yeah. when I'm doing that. That's what gives people energy. Yeah, that's the momentum I love. Yeah. So what advice would you give, let's say, to a younger person, whether they're male or they're female, who was 6, 9, 15, 20, 30, 40 even, right, mm. who isn't as sure as you were with regard to their path or finding out what their passion was to make it their paycheck? What advice would you give them so they could try and identify that or find that? The thing about it, Gavin, is that great to be passionate about something, but probably 70% of your job's something that you're not passionate about. So we're sometimes selling false hopes to people. People see me and they think, oh, this is amazing. This is a really glamorous job, you know, incredible, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't see me at, you know. Operating theatre. Yeah. Or they don't see me at six o'clock in the morning doing the pays for my staff or doing the callbacks or doing the thousands of letters and the dictation. And people don't see that. So I think you've got to be really Society is not necessarily that realistic anymore. That a lot They've of the jobs. The, society's lost the plot. I a think. lot of the jobs mundane. Yeah. I mean, they're living by social media, yeah. Gavin. Yeah. It's not real. Yeah. Life is not like that. Probably 60% of your job is mundane. 100%. 40% is the bang. And probably some people say 10, 10%. And so I think what you need to do as a young person is you need to be open. You need to work as hard as you can in as many different pursuits that you might be vaguely interested in. You need to communicate with people from all different walks of life. Be open. Open your mind. Buying a new handbag is not going to make you happy, Gavin. You know, it's beautiful to look at, but it's not going to sustain you for the rest of your life. Finding great people that you have rapport with that give you energy, that are intellectually stimulating, that will sustain you. Yeah. And I think if you find that and you become great at that, you can buy more than one new handbag. Yeah. You can get the Birkin, you get the Kelly, you get the whatever you want. Or you can have a paper bag. Or a paper bag, right? <laughs> but have, have the, have the, set it up right, you know, yeah. find that first, be open first, nothing and, comes in. And easy. the other thing is, Gavin, people don't realize, I mean, you said you're in the service industry. I'm in the service industry. There aren't many occupations that are not in the service industry. If you're not prepared to work hard and you're not prepared to provide a service that's superior to other people, then you're not going to be successful. And so I find today that so many younger people, they're very intelligent. They're so much more intelligent than I ever was in, you know, what happens in society and IT. They've got everything, Gavin. They're going to be amazing, but they need to keep their minds open. And they need to apply, right? Yeah, and they need to turn up every day and they need, you know, not just to have a sick day because they need a mental health day, they're not feeling well or they've got a sore throat or whatever. I love no. you. I've got to say. I, so, I, I, I mean, like, what I'm saying is probably not great. Yeah. I mean, people no, no. probably don't like what I'm saying, Gavin. Yeah, but I, I say the same things. Like I was sitting down here on Monday morning meeting and we've got my uh, chief of staff who's pregnant for the for the second yeah. time. Yeah. She's unbelievable, Sarah Meyer. Yeah. And I had a big chat to everyone kind of saying, look, COVID's over, guys. If you're sick right now, short of like not being able to- She's pregnant again. I didn't know that. She's pregnant again, Oh yeah. my God, how exciting. And I said, no, short of not being able to actually like 
get out of bed. I expect everyone to kind of be in here within reason. And that means being being more responsible. You know, Sarah actually interrupted me and I thought because she runs HR, she was going to like reprimand me. Um, but what did she say? She, she said, look, I'm sick, everybody. And on Saturday night when my husband, Will, went out, I went to bed early knowing I had a really big week because we're going through a rebrand. And I'm like- But Gavin, you've got adults here. Yeah. Is that 101? Yeah. Like, honestly, yeah. don't yeah. go out on a Saturday yeah. night if you've got an open home early on Monday morning. Like, it's not rocket science. It's being responsible and it's- it's showing that you've got management potential. Don't come here and say, okay, I want to earn this much money. I want to work four days a week and I only want to work nine to three, but I want to get paid what you do. No. But that's the problem this with society issue, and social media is people see that, they have the expectation of getting that, but not willing to put in what it requires to attain it. And that's the big problem. So how do we fix it? <laughs> Not for us. Focus on what you no, do. Well, focus. you know, you know what I do. My my, I've a, a, a gorgeous friend that helps me in marketing, and she's also my daughter's godmother. Right. But she's like trying to tell, just get lots of them, just get lots of them, get lots of people, um, double game. them up. Numbers game. You know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. businesses have to do that now. But what is going to happen? I mean, financially, you know, finance is not my thing, Gavin. I'm not great with it. But what is going to happen when the market? drops, Gavin, and no one's got any money left and all the COVID dollars have washed away, you know, gone out with the Kleenex boxes. What's going to happen then, Gavin? Are those people going to be turning up every day for work desperate for a job? Probably they will, but they won't have the fitness to work. Okay. So when you're working at the pace that we're working at, Gavin, you've got to be fit. You've got to be training every day. You've got to be playing your basketball. You've got to be on. But when you've been sitting there for two years at home, you know, just doing things at half pace, you've lost it mentally and physically. You've got it. So that fitness to work is going to take time to come back. Yeah. And that's as a society, we've got to change that. But maybe people were saying, you and I have got to change, Gavin. We've got to chill out a bit more. We've got to just not worry about things. Just let it go, you know? No, not not part of my DNA. Doesn't mean it's the right way. But it's (laughs) it's my way, you know, and it's worked for me. And and look, by the by the sounds of it, it's worked for you. Tell me about October. Why is that a special yeah. month? Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Right. It's October. And how can we, how can the listeners uh, get involved with that? Yeah. I think if you've got a few philanthropic dollars to spend, you could find your favorite breast cancer charity and you could give some money. But I think more than that and much more important, you need to be breast aware. Yeah. So um, if you're over the age of 40, go for a mammogram. If you're under the age of 40, feel your breasts, know your breasts, look at them in the mirror, get someone else to feel them. Have a look to know what your this is own men and female, right? Yeah, so men about one percent of all men get breast cancer. One percent, one percent of all breast cancers are in males. It's a very small number, right. so probably about two thousand cases a year, right? Compared to twenty plus thousand for women in Australia, we've got a very high number, about one in eight ladies at some stage in their life. So being aware of your own breast is really important. So if you can just look in the mirror for me, elevate your arms, put your hands on your hips, look to know what your breasts look like, feel your breasts, and be aware of what your own breasts feel like, know what they feel like throughout your menstrual cycle. If you're still menstruating, you've done a good deed for October. Yeah, amazing. And what's the future look like for you? What's the what's the future plan for Dr. Chantel <laughs> Thornton? Well, I mean, you know, I'm hearing that you're building some great new rooms, Gavin. Maybe we could co-locate. Oh, we could do like breast examiner for house to go with it or something. Just you know? get like a, a package on the uh, maybe the settlement gift or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Free mammogram while you wait for your contract to be signed. Um, but no, look, uh, I mean, I think my husband, you know, we bought a property in Sydney. Amazing. Um, in in uh, Darling Point. How was that experience? Who did you buy from? How did it feel? <laughs> 
Well, my husband did make an error a few years earlier. He should have bought the property that I wanted in Darling Point. <laughs> but, you know, he was slow to react and couldn't get his head around the Sydney prices and, you know, he was doing other things with his cash. And so a few years later, he paid a lot more money for something about one fifth of the size, Gavin. Um, Sydney, so, Sydney yeah, suburbs, yeah. We bought it at an auction. In fact, my son bought it. You know, the next thing I know, someone was putting the hand up behind me. We had only looked at the property for two minutes the evening before and wow. I found out it was my husband. Then he started just bidding against himself and the auctioneer was like, the bid's against you, gentlemen. And he's like, I know, I'm, I got my hand up until I buy the property. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. It is an amazing place in Darling Point, Yarra and Abbey on the water. Um, it, it is incredible. You feel like you're in another world and the views are to die for. A big wave came up and smashed him with water on the head during the auction. I thought, oh, thank goodness. He's not going to buy it. That made means, him want it more. He wanted it more. He was like, I want this property more than ever. So, and he's also got a dealership um, that he's opening in Rash Cutters. Wow. Um, so, him and I need to talk. Yeah, because because I need a I need a I need a brand partnership with a high end car. Ah, oh, love place. that. So we sh- we should chat about that. Yeah. So he's doing that, and I suppose eventually I've also you know I've booked the children in for some schools here and schools in Sydney, and so will you, know, you, will you come to Sydney? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But the thing about it, I guess, I'd need to find my team because you know breast surgery is not a one man or one woman shop. And so not only you're talking about my personal team at Specialist Breast Cancer Surgery, but the thing that makes the business successful is all of the other incredible doctors I work with. So yeah. the oncologist, the yeah. radiation oncologist, the pathologist, the radiologist, all of those people allow me to give the very best care to my team, my anaesthetists, all those people are handpicked by me. And so finding those people again is going to be hard because it's it's 10 plus years for me to build those people. And that's what I've got to find in Sydney. And that's why I suppose I'm a little bit reluctant to sort of start, you know, practice here because I need to be able to find those amazing people to work with me and to have those relationships and also to work at the level I do. Like my pathologists are ringing up and say, I need this one rapidly processed. Please get it back to me. Can you biopsy the patient today? Like all of that. They're like, you know, you're killing me, Chantel, but I'll do it because I know there's a patient at the end or I need the operation done tonight at, you know, seven or eight o'clock tonight because the lady's going overseas in a week and she needs the operation done. Okay, we'll open a theatre, we'll do it. I need those people and it's hard to find those. Very tough. Again, not comparing, but similar situation. My photographers, my videographers, if I tell my client by a certain time, they hate me. These guys hate me and they love me because I give them more business than anybody else. Same. But they hate me because I press them to deliver right. at, at higher levels. But it's tough, man. I know. I mean, I mean, I'm the largest provider of radiological services to Epworth, which is the largest private hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. And they're like, we have three ultrasound rooms going a day, Chantel. We can't fit somebody. Oh, please, like, this is a 20-year-old lady. She's coming from Mildura. It's a long way. Like, please just, you know. And they're like, oh, okay, Chantel. We'll you know, but happen. Yeah. But and that, these that are these. That you need those people and because they're incredible because those people, uh, you know, they're not getting paid a commission, Gavin. They're doing it because they love patients and they want to get a great result for that patient and they care about people. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in finding people that care about a patient because the patient is what matters at the end of the day. Top lessons you've learned over the course of, of your career that have really helped shape, you know, the individual you are today. Always do the best that you can for your patient and no one will ever criticize you. Gold. Just gold. Always do the best by your patient. Show respect to everyone regardless Mm. of where you think their pecking order is in society. Be kind to everyone and show respect. I think that's really important in any service industry. Also gold. 
Yeah. So it doesn't matter kind of how high. I mean, me, whenever I'm taking a buyer through a private appointment, open the door, sir, ma'am, you know, address people correctly, be on time. The basic stuff, the common sense stuff that isn't so common. You've got good breeding. You've got a great mum and dad, obviously. They've they've taught you great manners and I think that's important. And ideas, like, I mean, get ideas from everyone. Ask everyone in your team if they have anything to add, if they think there's a way we can do things better. I think that's really important. And the other, the third thing I'd say, Gavin, is that every interaction you have with every person is an opportunity to, because I know you love the branding side, it's an opportunity to expose your brand, it's an opportunity to sell yourself. So regardless, if that happens to be the janitor in the hospital that you're bumping in at two o'clock in the morning, say hello to them, be nice to them. That person's got a story. Wow. You're unbelievable. I I, I mean, I knew I'd like you, but I really like you. (laughs) You can have my phone number. I'm going to need it, particularly now that you bought a house in Darling Point on the water. You know what I mean? (gasps) Yeah, I know. Well, now, as soon as we got pregnant with the second child, my husband's like, oh my gosh, we've just made our apartment into two bedrooms. I was like, settle down. Children are allowed to share a bedroom. (laughs) I shared a bedroom, a whole, whole, but it wasn't on the water, unfortunately. So I think they'll be just fine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Gavin. Thank you for listening to Thinking Outside the Box with Gavin Rubenstein. Subscribe now for future episodes.